was all about money, car, clothes, and that, like, that's it. Like, that was the only thing up here at that time. Now it's like, whoa, I'm put on this earth to serve others, to teach and help people grow. Oh my gosh, it's a very different paradigm from where I was at. It's time! Work! Play! I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is a mindful leadership expert. In the 80s, his family jewelry business in LA generated millions of dollars, but they went completely broke after a fire at their manufacturing plant. While on a search for meaning and purpose in his life, he decided to become a monk. He spent 15 years living as a monk in one of the busiest parts of New York City. He's an author, a speaker, and a coach on mindful leadership, resilience, team building, and stress management. In a world that's filled with digital distraction and overstimulation, his strategies for mindfulness and focus are more important now than ever. They apply specifically to people in the working world. My guest is named Pandit Dasa. If you are in the corporate world looking to achieve work-life harmonization, more focus, more peace, more joy, then this episode is for you. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on, and feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's Pundit. Pundit, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Thank you, Patrick. Super happy to be here. I am really interested in your story and some of the insights that I know will be really valuable for really any audience member that's listening to this, especially uh, in the working world, in the insurance world. And I'm hoping that you can start off by telling the story about what happened to your family jewelry store in Los Angeles. Well, my parents, you know, before they had the jewelry factory, the jewelry business, prior to that, they had very simple and humble beginnings. They set up, a, they had a small shop on Venice Beach and they were selling gift items seven days a week, driving about 40 minutes a day each way. And just very simple, those, those uh, on, on the boardwalk of Venice Beach, those shops that are set up, they were one of those. Mm-hmm. And that gradually built out to within an eight year period, a multi-million dollar jewelry import export jewelry business. Wow. And Panda, your your parents immigrated from India, right? Yeah, from India in okay. 1980. And first place they landed was LA. And one of the first places they would start doing their sort of like retail operation was Venice Beach. Okay. And so 
within eight years or so with a lot of luck and hard work, both combined, I think are what's needed a lot of times for us to achieve success. They established the, we, we began living the American dream, right? <clears throat> House on the hill with a pool, a jacuzzi and Mercedes Benz and, you know, just the whole, whole lifestyle. And everything was great for a while. Then in about eight, about five or six years into that in the early 1990s, the jewelry factory actually caught on fire. It was like a heavy rainstorm and water leaked through the electrical plant caught on fire and the thing burnt to a crisp. So for the most part, and we ended up losing the business. And once the business was gone, we lost the house and gradually we just kind of went almost completely broke. Wow. So it was how, started with nothing, had everything and then back down to nothing again. How old were you when that fire broke out? I was probably about 19. Okay. Okay. So at that point you might've been considering going to college. What, what kind of stage of life were you at and what was kind of going through your head at that time? Well, there was a lot going through my head because I thought my life was set. Mm. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's not like really not. And I was in my first or second year of college, but I wasn't able to focus at all because literally my life was falling apart. And when money was tight, I stopped going out with my friends and didn't want to explain to them how bad things were because they always saw me as the one who had everything. They were coming to my home for like pool parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just like, don't have much. And I was careful to spend money because we didn't have much. So when you're at that level and you have to drop down, it's, it's difficult and it's painful and can be embarrassing. And I was and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I was distancing myself from my friends and really just, it was a whirlwind experience. Uh, I really wasn't sure what my future ha had in store for me, where things were going to be. Because like I said, it seemed like my life was set. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. So that was a major, major transition. Yeah. So what happened from there? You're one or two years into college and then this goes down and then the future is extremely unclear. Where did you go from there? So my, my dad decided to explore, he was feeling a little desperate and trying to figure out what to do next. So he decided to explore new business opportunities in post-communist Bulgaria. And uh, to give you an idea what that was like, what post-communist Bulgaria was like, you know, and because it had just come out of communism, like no one spoke English, the grocery stores, the cabs, like anywhere you go, people just didn't speak a word of English other than hello and goodbye. <laughs> that was it. And so, so basically, and then, then we, we followed him. We like closed up our life in LA for good. And we just went to Bulgaria and you know, did everything. You, on did you drop out of college? Yeah. I had to leave like two and a half years into it. Wow. I, I still remember, I still remember standing in line, checking out of my classes, like wow. saying that I, I don't know when I'm going to come back or whatever it was. I, you know, those moments you have in your life that you sort of never forget that are always etched in here. Yeah. I still remember just standing in line to check out of school, like really confused, like what's like a twilight zone kind of an episode. Like, is this really happening? Is this my reality right now? <clears throat> but, you know, doing that. And then, so we, we fly off to Bulgaria and uh, you know, even everything on TV there was in Bulgarian and in Russian and the movie theaters, I don't think allowed American movies. So whatever movies they did have were several years old and I'd like seen everything like, my social life came to a screeching halt because I, I couldn't have one there because of the language barrier. Mm -hmm. 
cultural barriers. And I'm going through this sort of like a financial upheaval, a trauma that we just went through. So I'm kind of in a daze uh, while we're there. And so, and you know, we're doing import export over there, which which did okay, but it was still a big transition. And, and that was the transition that sort of pushed me into a practice of mindfulness. Mm. Like that's sort of what was, that was kind of the push <laughs> and the shakeup. And I guess the kick in the butt that I needed to figure out that there's something, I need an inward journey. I need an internal journey because the external journey is very unpredictable. I think for most of us would agree that not a lot has to happen in any one of our lives for us to spiral down. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of things happen in our life, could happen in our life, that would make us go spiraling down in so many ways. Did you feel that because maybe you had like a lack of control with what was going on and where you're living, with work, with your social life, et cetera? What do you mean exactly? Like, like lack of control? Did you turn inward to mindfulness because you had you you felt a lack of control with the external environment? I think it was just many factors. It was yeah. just the up upheaval that I had went through. And you know, when you come out of something like that, or you're coming out of something like that, your head's just sort of spinning. And so you need something to ground you, something to something, you got to do something that helps you make sense of it all. Okay. And, and I realized that the external world didn't make that much sense. Like why this happened didn't make any sense. There wasn't a logical, real logical reason why things collapsed the way they did. And I'm like, okay, my realization was that life is very unpredictable. Like it could happen to anyone. It happens to people all the time, right? Complete upheavals or complete, you know, progress, either one. It happens. A lot of times we just get lucky. (laughs) <laughs> and and sometimes we get really unlucky. So all of this made me sort of introspect about the purpose of life, the meaning of life. And therefore I turned to, at that point, mindfulness meditation. I also didn't have anything else to do. So I'm like, okay, let me pr- try this out. I've seen my parents do it in the past. And so um, I decided to start to practice it. And it helped me stay a little bit more calm and helped me make sense of things. It was something uh, that was really needed for me because I'd kind of ignored my inward journey. I was too busy and caught up in just enjoying life and nothing wrong with enjoying life, but to such a degree where you forget about your inner journey and you forget, it's kind of like taking your car to the car wash, but never really opening up the hood and changing the oil. I feel like I'd living that kind of lifestyle. When you say you started to practice mindfulness or focus on mindfulness, (laughs) would you say like you started to meditate more or was there any specific actions you were taking to focus on mindfulness or become better at being mindful? Yeah, there was a couple things. One is I was actually meditating. That means breathing exercises, focusing exercises, concentration exercises, also just going inward to understand really like who lives inside of the shell of a body? Like who, what am I on a deeper level? Like what makes me move? Like how, what's making my brain move? What's making my eyes able to see things and process that's a tree, that's an animal, that's a car, that's the sky. Like, how is it all functioning? Who am I that's doing all? Who's the one seeing everything? Who's the one touching? Is it me, the physical body? There's something more. So I was reading some uh, books of wisdom from India uh, and, uh, and I was doing the mindfulness meditation practices. So it was interesting because usually 
when people want to do this, they go to like India or Thailand or some yoga retreat. I was in like post-communist Eastern Europe doing this stuff by myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. So it sounds like this was like the initiation point in your journey to get into the monk lifestyle. So how did you get from Bulgaria to, I'm guessing India, and then back to New York City? Yeah, so we spent about two, two and a half years in Bulgaria. And the country was so unstable and even a little unsafe. So we, after a couple of years, we said, we got to get out of here <laughs> before we, like, something crazy happens. And <laughs> the law enforcement wasn't really like on your side, you know, if anything oh did God. happen. Yeah. It, was, it was one of those things. So without, without saying too much, I think people can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, we came back to the U.S. and my parents started a retail business in Manhattan. Helped them with that a little but. The shock of what had happened never hadn't didn't like really leave me. And I kept thinking about like, geez, what the heck just happened? And here I am now in like New York, New Jersey, from like LA to Bulgaria to here. And even here I didn't know anybody. And and so yeah. I continue to question life. Um, like something's going on and I and I feel like I have no control over this. And where is it gonna end and what's gonna come out of all of this? It just seems so crazy. And then finally, 1999, I said, you know, I just need to take a break. I'd met some monks in the New York area. And, um, you know, then I decided, let me go to India, live with monks and really learn how to do all of this properly, meditate properly, understand life properly, see what they're reading, what they're studying, how they think. And maybe I can adopt that into my life. I wasn't thinking of becoming a monk. I just wanted to go stay with them for a while and learn from them. Mm -hmm. So here I am, I fly off to Mumbai, India. It's so like a super busy city. It makes New York City look like the suburbs, honestly. Wow. You know, it's got a 22 million population as opposed to 8 million for like New York. And the monastery is in the middle of all of it. You know, there was a 40 monks living there. Everybody slept on a hardwood floor. It was pretty hardcore. <laughs> was like every, no one had mattresses or beds. Yeah. yeah. Their own Panda, did you have a uh, like a mentor or a contact or like a family member that was really influencing your uh like the beginning of this journey and like who you're staying with for example or or someone that you trusted that was already a monk was there was there someone that was influencing you making that trip to india yeah yeah there was a mentor in new york uh he was a monk at that time and he had made the suggestion that you know i may want to check out the monastery in mumbai it's a really good one they have a good training program and so him and someone else also kind of helped me just get to that space and get entry to stay there. Cause they didn't really have that many, they didn't have any guest rooms. So I was just like living with the monks <laughs> and you know, like they had three big common rooms where everybody slept at night. So it's like a dozen monks per room sort of. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and so then, you know, we, everybody woke up at four because the meditation started at five and it would go on for a few hours, you know, a few hours. And then after that, the rest of the day was spent in service, service to one another, service to the community, so basically, if it was a li- it was a life of simplicity, humility, service, not having many possessions, and just really reflecting on life and serving others. And so, you know, I I wasn't sure how long I'd last, like you know, living that way. But somehow, I actually fell in love with the simplicity of it, and I realized I had this one epiphany where I was like, you know, I feel more content now living this way and just living out of a small suitcase than I was when I was a millionaire. Like something just hit me. I'm like, I actually feel like, okay, back, I had stuff at that time as a millionaire, but there was something missing 
in my heart. But now I didn't have the stuff, but something in the heart was filled. And I just remember that, as well, again, one of those moments you're like, this is something interesting. Like I never expected to feel this, like a contentment. And yeah. so I realized that there is something more to life than just money and fame and all of these things that, and if we don't have that, then the money and the fame will actually drive us crazy. That's really interesting. So would you say that your like general happiness level living uh, in a monastery in India would you say it was higher than being back home in New Jersey, New York with your family, running the retail store, kind of living a, a normal American life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was finally having conversations, deep conversations, I think that I, that I, I was always questioning, but you know, you, you, you have that kind of a conversation with someone about life, they'll think you're weird. Mm -hmm. Like, why not talk about sports? Or why not talk about this person or that person or this latest show or this movie? That's that's kind of how the, that's the conversation we have growing up. You know, usually we don't sit down with a friend and say like, "How do you think we actually got here? What do you think happens after death? You think there's more out there in the universe than just us?" Like, you know, you don't talk about that stuff with friends that much. And so, these are the kind of conversations I started having with the monks because they thought about these things quite a bit, and they talked about karma, like why things actually happen to us, how life it is all like a cycle. You do something good or bad it's going to come back, make its way into your life somehow or other. It's going to show up. No escaping karma. Like literally, no, you think you can get mm -hmm. away with stuff, but actually you don't. It's like this is a record. It follows you around. And at some point in life, it's going to show up. And then we'll get angry that it's, it's happening to me because we, are, we fail to make the connection of the things we've done in the past and how this is, could be leading coming from that. So this, this was very fascinating to me. This helped me deal with the losses that I'd experienced. Mm -hmm. And it was a difficult thing because now I was confronted with the idea that whatever happened to me, that did I do something to deserve that? Mm. And I'm like, wait, no way, not me. I'm too good. I'm too nice a guy to be, des to be deserving something like this. But then I had to at some point grasp that, you know, I don't know the bigger picture in life. Who knows what I've done and to, to deserve this? There, I just start to believe that there's a reason that everything happens in life. Mm -hmm. There's a reason behind it. We always don't know the reason, just like a child may not know the reason why the parents are forcing it to study. It may not understand that. Theoretically, like, yeah, I'm supposed to grow up and I'll learn stuff and maybe get a job and I'll make, like, it can't process all of that. So I'm like, well, I'm probably still a child when it comes to the game of life and the, in the universe. And so let me accept that I'm perhaps a child and that I don't know, know everything and I don't have all the answers, but mm -hmm. answers will come as and when they need to. So that was something I was confronted by. And I had to accept that, you know, I had to make peace with the fact that whatever has happened and whatever is happening is happening for my growth. It's happening for a reason that I may not understand, and it's okay not to have that understanding right now. That sounds like it must have been a really calming epiphany. Uh, it was It was like being submerged underwater a long time, and then you get your head finally out of it. That's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah, wow. So what was the day-to-day -day routine living in India? 
So basically, like I said, we, you know, everybody got up at four, four thirty. There's a mad dash to use the communal bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like 40 monks, like charging towards the bathrooms and there's like six or seven of them uh-huh. uh, for, for the 40 monks. So there's you know, a couple, you have to wait in line patiently. And then yeah. you had to be in the hall at like 5 a.m. That was like the rule for the monastery. And after like the whole morning meditation, prayer ceremony of studying different like spiritual texts and stuff, then some of the monks would be, would have cooked breakfast and we'd all sit down and eat breakfast together. Like 30, 40 of us would eat together yeah. and stuff that they have cooked themselves. So they wouldn't eat anything from outside. It's like f- food cooked by them. Uh, and after that, you know, everybody had assignments to clean different parts of the, the monastery. And after that, you know, you, you know, cause you got up at four, it's already like 10, 11. And there was a little time. If you wanted to take a quick nap, you could. Yeah. And then there'd be a time where everybody would come together and study different spiritual texts We'd spend like an hour, hour and a half studying. Then there'd be lunch. And in the afternoon, different monks had different duties. Some would be translating things into English books. Some would go out to different university campuses and give talks to the students. So there was just some would go to people's homes and where they'd invited their friends and give talks on spirituality to them. So I was going to, I was just sort of shadowing a lot of these monks, just like, this is what they do. This is really interesting. And so, so that's kind of everybody. And then by nine or 10, by 10, you know, they, everybody try to get in bed because by, you got to be up by four, no matter what. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Early wake up call. Do monks have to abide by a specific diet? Yeah. Yeah, they do. At least, the, at least the order that I was in, and I, I know for a lot, a lot of monks do, but not all. Okay. Um, but the order that I was in, they had to follow a strict vegetarian diet, which basically meant no meat, no fish, no eggs. And, uh, you know, and the, and the reasoning behind it, it's not just like hard rules or something, but it's like, it's, it's good for your body. And also the idea was one of the sort of like the philosophical concepts was that we want to live in a way that is not causing harm, pain, or violence to other beings, humans or animals. Mm. Uh, Because when we intake violence, either through our eyes, through a violent movie, or through our mouth, through foods that have been, I guess, killed and tortured. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, that affects our mind. Okay. That affects our thinking. That affects our behavior. It's like, it's like if you watch a lot of violence or sexual content, then what happens, your mind becomes desensitized to it. Mm. You just don't, you're just like, nah, whatever. You know, and then you play video games and you're like blowing people's heads off. And yeah. then it just seems that seems to become normal. Like, oh, you know, somebody gets hurt on the street. You're just like, yeah. Right. Let me just get out the phone and video this. This is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like, hey, let me see if I can help this person. So same thing, you know, if we, anything when our senses take in a product of violence where others have suffered and been in pain for it, then it does affect us as human beings. Mm-hmm. There's no way that, that when we expose ourselves to that kind of a thing, whether watching or eating things that have been exposed to violence, then it will affect us. And then of of course, as a result of that, it affects your meditation, your ability to meditate because it affects your mind, Mm -hmm. the way the mind thinks, affects your ability to meditate. And yeah, and and makes the mind a little bit more disturbed because of that. Because what what goes in affects the mind, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure the impact of um, certain things like witnessing violence or like, I don't know, there's plenty of things that I think people just take for granted that are probably having a much deeper impact than uh, they probably realize. Um, yeah, totally, totally. 
I mean, and another aspect of the diet was there was obviously, uh, not obviously, I guess not to most, most, most people, but there's also we restrained from all alcoholic type beverages and also all caffeinated products. Again, the idea was to influence your mind. Clean living. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was the idea. Like just yeah. don't put something in your body where the body gets stressed out trying to process it. Yeah. Um, so the body can be free of those substances so that you can meditate better. You can have a clearer mind. And more energy, actually. You get more energy if, if you can be free of those things. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I, I have only done maybe like a, a micro sampling of uh, a diet like that. It was like a January I did. I was like totally uh, vegetarian just to see if I could do it. And no alcohol as well. Just to see like the, the impact on my energy. And like the impact on my energy was real. That was, mm. that was wild. I felt light. You know, I, I didn't never felt like super drained yeah um, which is like yeah. like if you if I were to go get like a burrito for lunch it's like you know you have that 20 minute 30 minute window after where you're just like <laughs> you know totally wiped out um but I did I never got that in that month when I was doing that diet yeah yeah it's amazing what, what the kind of fuel we put into our body even affects our productivity I mean like you know if you, if you put the right fuel into your car it's going to run good yep same thing with our body. It's just like a machine. You put the wrong, the heavy fuels in there, then it's going to slow it down. Then let's say you're dealing with clients and you've got a groggy head. You're not so clear. You're not so focused. So everything that goes in through the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the ears, it affects how we function. Mm -hmm. What goes in comes back out in different ways. Yeah, I, it, I can totally... Uh validate that in terms of like my energy with eating like a huge sandwich or a burrito or fast food or something is like my afternoon is not even close to as productive as it is. If I have a salad, you know, a salad just kind of keeps me moving through. Um, yeah. But I guess I'm curious as well, Pundit, when you're in India for, in these monasteries, are the monks all male or they're female monks too? Or, or, um, are there, is that a, maybe a different, type of, um, I don't know if you'd say occupation or type of path for like a, a woman to go down. Is there two separate things or is it just a male, uh, pathway? There's both, but in one monastery, it was just men and there's others, I guess there are nunneries where there's women. They wouldn't be living together, okay. uh, generally. So, but the monasteries I was in were only men lived in those. And uh, then there's other separate places. I mean, mm -hmm. which I wasn't thinking because there was all for women. <laughs> yeah. uh, but majority of the monasteries are male monasteries. But there are facilities where women can also live the same exact lifestyle for the most part. Uh, just, you know, it's just women doing their thing. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I was just interested. I know I'm a bit naive and ignorant to the process. So you're in India. You go through this training process. You achieve a higher level of happiness or satisfaction that you didn't know was possible. Tell me about the journey from India to New York City. So basically, you know, my visa expired. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess I got to back to the US. So then I moved into the monastery in New York City. Those are the monks that I'd known. And it basically it was just a, a two bedroom apartment and we called it a monastery because monks were living in that apartment at that time. <laughs> so it's like a tiny two bedroom apartment. Then um, we graduated to move into a slightly bigger space. But yeah, so I moved to the monastery in New York on the Lower East Side. And for those who've been to the Lower East Side know it's a pretty wild place. 
it's pretty crazy. Like the monastery we were living in had, we had about, you know, monks would come and go. So it's like sometimes just like I went to India and I left. So sometimes monks, people would come in to stay with us for a month or three months, six months, a year, however long you wanted to stay, your calling, as long as your calling kept you there, you stay, then you, you were free to go and go back and pursue material life. So that's, that was never an issue. And so the monastery I was living in in New York City had a tattoo shop right next door. Then the next three establishments were bars and restaurants. Across the street, there was like an underground nightclub. I can't even imagine what would happen there. And then there was like a funeral parlor right next to that. Then there was like some bagel shops and delis and a laundromat. So this was where I was living for, you know, and I spent about 15 years living as a monk in New York. Again, I didn't think it was going to last that long, but that's what happened. And the lifestyle was very similar. We're getting up at 4, 4.30 in the morning, meditating, praying, doing all of that, going out and serving. My service that I guess I had an inner calling to do and some encouragement to do was to connect with college students and help them understand their inner journey. So I was doing talks and meditations and vegetarian cooking classes and spiritual discussions at Columbia University in New York City. Oh, cool. And I was getting 50 to 100 students coming to our cooking classes, about a dozen, about 15 to 20 students coming to our meditation sessions. And students were really loving learning about this lifestyle because they were very high stressed, very motivated, very driven group of individuals. And so to find something that could help them find some calm and a little reprieve in the middle of their week was very satisfying for them. And it was very satisfying for me that I could actually teach something of value to other people, not something I had thought of at all growing up in LA that I'm ever going to teach someone something of value. It was all about money, car, clothes, and that, like, that's it. Like that was the only thing up here at that time. Now it's like, whoa, I'm put on this earth to serve others, to teach and help people grow. Oh my gosh. It's a very different paradigm from where I was at. Yeah. That's an incredible uh, revelation. And it's funny you say, uh, you mentioned the cars in LA. It's like, I, I feel like I, I actually went to Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And it was just so interesting seeing the focus on how people were invested in their cars versus growing up in Northern California. But I can only imagine, and that's an incredible revelation from growing up in LA, yeah. you know, just a few years later, being in New York City, living as a monk and uh, really living in service to a lot of these students. And the street that you lived on, it really stood out in your book, um, Closing the Apps. It was, it sounds like absolute chaos. <laughs> it, it totally was. I mean, it, it was on First Avenue and Houston Street. And, I mean, the rest of the country calls it Houston, but New Yorkers call it Houston Street. Uh-huh. And it was just chaos because 20 blocks down, there are several hospitals. That means ambulances are driving right down First Avenue and our, our window is on First Avenue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on especially like Sunday mornings when we'd get up at four and start meditating at five, that's when the bars close. Oh no. So our, the, our meditation space was on the third floor and then right on the sidewalk, you could hear the chatter of like very drunk people uh-huh. at five in the morning. Sometimes you could hear yelling and screaming because people are out of their mind by that time. Uh-huh. And 
And then you could sometimes even hear fist fights, bottles breaking, and sometimes it's just loud and you look out and then, you know, you could see like the red and blue lights flashing. You're like, okay, the cops are here. And then I remember even one time looking out just out of curiosity, like what's going on? There's all this commotion. I saw two guys without their shirts in the middle of the street having a fist fight and cars just driving around them. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, no. That was the environment of the monastery. It doesn't get any crazy. Like when most people think of, if I tell you, when you, what do you think of monastery? Mountains, trees. Yeah. Isolation. Lake, isolation, a cave, peacefulness, birds, and, you know, lawns, grass. Not like two guys without shirts and having a fist fight at five in the morning, you know? What, a, what an unbelievable test for mindfulness and for, you know, staying calm and not letting your environment affect your internal state. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I can't say that it didn't affect the internal state because whatever we see in here, right. It affects us, <clears throat> but you're just like, my gosh, you know, I'm like, that could have been me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that could have been me doing that as opposed to doing this. Uh -huh. And it helped me realize that life out there is, is so different than what I'm doing right now. And I'm like, you know, I could have gone down that road if I didn't turn to this. Like mm -hmm. after all that I'd gone through, that could have easily been me at five in the morning without a shirt on in the middle of the street. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like it could be you. It could, we could all be that person. <clears throat> we sometimes are like, Oh, that we would never do that. I could never do that. Never say never. Like, and I'll bring this point in. You know, it's obviously been talked about around the world about what happened with Will Smith, right? Yes. <clears throat> and Chris Rock. And I thought about it for like a whole week. First, I was like, I don't even know what to make of this. It was so shocking. And then I'm like, oh, that was so wrong of him to do that. And then I thought about it more. I'm like, you know what? It wasn't right, but any one of us could be driven to do what he just did. Mm -hmm. Anyone who says, never me, like you're lying because you know, that means you don't even know yourself. You're telling me there's nothing I could do to you that would make you slap me or hit me in public. Like there's nothing I could do to you or your family right now. Right. You would jump at me and beat the crap out of me. Like yeah. we could all be pushed as human beings or animals pushed to a point of attacking someone. Mm -hmm. And it just tells me that I don't know what's happening in that man's life, not excusing what happened. Totally. But instead of just judging and blaming and all of that, like he's human, he has emotions, he has feelings. We don't know all the things that happened that led up to that night for him. What happened in his family, his professional life, in his social circle. We don't know where he was. Maybe he was at a tipping point. Yep. And then one look by Jada snapped. Mm -hmm. And even to think about the fact that somebody could do something to in a, such a public and sophisticated in a, in an environment. Shocking. It, it's, that means, that means there was some extreme stuff happening. Yep. In his life, which we have no clue about and no access to. And so therefore, I think we just need to hold our judgment to ourselves and keep looking in the mirror like, hey, that could be me. Let me be more careful. Seriously, so my I totally is, agree with you. <clears throat> right? It, it could happen to any of us. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's when I was thinking like, that could be me also out on the street, you know? Yeah, yeah. Clearly, clearly the action was wrong, but it's like, how can anyone relate to Will <clears throat> There's very few people that I could relate to Will Smith's position, being a celebrity <clears throat> like that, 
the career he's had, the personal relationships. I mean, his personal relationships were, have been in the news for the last few years. And so, you know, who knows what's going through Will Smith's mind and for someone yeah. to, to judge what's going, you know, his personal situation. I mean, that's, that's pretty tough. I mean, you can, I feel like you can, the action there, there just, there needs to be some consequences for it, obviously, but, um, judgment of someone else like that, I think, uh, needs to be reserved. Yeah. And right. I think as people, unfortunately, we love tearing people down, especially somebody who's been, the more successful you are, the more others enjoy tearing you down and bringing you down. And I think that we should not stop looking at the good things he has done in life, the good messages he has put out there in life. Like it doesn't invalidate all, all of those things. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he had a human moment. It doesn't invalidate, you know, and I won't get into it, but some of the biggest leaders in our history, historic figures, yeah. have had some crazy stuff in their personal lives that we never talk about, simply because of all the good they did. Uh -huh. Like really immoral, unethical things that they've done when you read about them. You're like, holy cow. Yeah. Okay, but you see any of that, people are going to jump on you. But they've lived a lot, a lot of stuff. What they did was quite immoral in their own personal life, even though they did a lot of good. So we can't ignore the good. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to look at everything side by side. Yeah. You yeah. have to look at each other side by side and whatever's happening in life. And I, I also have one thing I learned in the monastic life. The more I judge someone for something, actually that same thing is very strongly likely it's going to happen to me too because I judge someone for it. Like if I judge him, I'll end up, the universe is going to force me to embarrass myself in front of a bunch of people. Mm. And I, that, that's like something like I've seen it happen in my life after I got into the monastery when I found myself judging people for something i ended up doing the same thing i'm like oh my gosh i thought i'd never do this and, like, and then it happened again and again i'm like you know what i think it's because i keep judging people for something that i end up doing the same thing because yeah. you start meditating on it very strongly and then you end up somehow the universe says okay your turn buddy here you go oh, no. you judging people about them being doing this or doing that here let's put you in their shoes and now you can be a, eat a little humble pie yeah wow yeah that, that's very interesting well, Pandit, so you spent 15 years living as a monk in New York City, and now you are an expert in mindfulness and applying mindful, mindfulness to organizations and individuals in the working world, dealing with things like work-life balance, uh, dealing th with things like negative thoughts, stress management. Can you talk about some strategies that people in the working world can use to um, become more more mindful and decrease stress and I, I guess be more at peace in an environment that's constantly driving your attention from one screen to the next screen to the next screen to the next screen? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one thing it's important to understand is that mindfulness is not something that's practiced just by monks. It's not something that means now you're becoming spiritual or religious. There's plenty of research suggesting that a secular practice of mindfulness is incredibly beneficial. There's an article in Forbes that says it can make you more productive. And how is that, right? Because you're like, oh, well, it, slow, it makes me more peaceful and calm and more detached. No, what happens is like, you know, the title of my book, Closing the Apps, when you close out the apps through these practices, the apps that you, because we've got so many apps open in our mind, Garbage, just a ton of garbage filled up there, right? Mm -hmm. So we're just thinking about stuff that's not even relevant from five years ago, from 10 years ago. Why did he do that? Why did she do that? I should, that shouldn't have happened to me. I deserve better. 
Fine, let's focus on the present. Otherwise, you'll miss this moment too. And this will be in the past and you'll be thinking about the regret that you had, you know, about all those things that didn't happen. So mindfulness helps us close out the apps that we don't need. And then you get more done. It's like if you're in, sitting in traffic and if somebody clears the traffic, you make more progress. You're more productive. That's what mindfulness does. Mm-hmm. There's another article in psychology today that said it can decrease anxiety, depression, and stress. And those are on all-time high right now, all of those. And the Harvard Business Review says it can boost emotional intelligence, which allows us to understand other people's perspective. And in an organization where you're working in teams, and pretty much everyone is working in teams to some degree or another, if we can't understand other people's perspective, then we won't be cooperating with them. We won't be communicating with them. And that means there'll be no collaboration. Yeah. So... Mindfulness, the practices involve breathing exercises, focusing exercises, taking moments of gratitude, taking moments to appreciate the contributions of your colleagues because our ego makes us think only about us. Uh, Look at my contribution. I've been here so long. Look at all that I've done. Yeah, but look at all the things other people have done too. Do we ever just stop and say, you know what? I'm gonna take three minutes, five minutes and think about, man, this person's done all of this for this team. And this person has been doing all of this for this team. And wow, there's an amazing person who comes in the evening and cleans the whole office. And mm-hmm. if they didn't clean, we'd be living in that, working in a dump. Appreciate them too, right? Yeah. Mindfulness means not just only being aware of what we're doing, but also being aware of what our colleagues are doing and having that appreciative mood towards our colleagues. And these breathing and focusing exercises allows us to close out those apps and see the deep breathing exercise that I guide audiences and corporate audiences through, they actually help not only close out the apps, but also research shows that it calms our emotions and nerves and also helps regulate blood pressure. Because if you notice, we're not taking deep breaths right now. We're, we're just getting by. We're literally breathing enough to get by, but yeah. a deep breath is like, when do we do that? We almost never do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, huge benefits and perks of doing it. I think, at least me personally, I need to figure out how I can do it more strategically. But as I was reading your book, I mean, the benefits of awareness, self-awareness, awareness of your environment, better focus, better ability to prioritize. Like when you talk about productivity, you know, it's like what, I have all these things coming at me, who's yelling the loudest, but what's most important? You know, having that ability to reset and uh, realign what you need to go after first and foremost. And, and maybe that's a combination of professional and personal things, but is there any specific strategies? And I know we talked about a meditation practice prior to jumping on the recording, but are there any specific daily strategies that someone in the working world could do to get better at mindfulness or build more mindfulness into their day? There's tons of things that we can do. One thing I would suggest when we first wake up, don't reach for one of these and start reading the news. I think there's a lot. The news is the news, okay? You're not missing anything if you skip it in that time. You could see it later. Wake up and just take a moment to feel grateful that you woke up. (laughs) It's a big thing. We woke up. We don't know what going on in the body yeah take a moment to feel grateful for some of the things happening in your life that means you're kickstarting your brain with positivity mm-hmm. right 
Mm-hmm. Take 10 deep breaths. If there's a couple people in your life that you're grateful for, think about them and say, wow, I'm so grateful that they're here. I'm so grateful that I have food to eat. So grateful I have a roof over my head. A lot of people right now don't. Throughout history, there's always been a lot of people that haven't had that. So the basic things in life, just take a moment of gratitude while you're still in bed. Right? So that's yeah. one thing. Okay. And then if you're starting your work day, and you're about to go into a meeting that you think may be stressful, you have to talk to clients or maybe deal with colleagues that you don't see eye to eye with, like, you know what? It's going to be a crazy meeting. I need to feed my mind right now. I need to make sure I'm in the right frame of mind to get in there. So what do I do? Take a minute or two, take 10 deep breaths, like the kind of breath I described really where your lungs are filled up completely, like breathe in until your lungs are fully expanded. And you'll notice like, whoa, this, I can take in this much breath. Yes, you can. We just never do it. Uh It's like putting in like one gallon into your car of gas, as opposed to the 12 or 15 that it can take. We're just putting in a gallon as opposed to what we can, we only take in like 10 or 15% of what our lungs are capable of. And imagine when you take in that much oxygen, of course, we're not going to breathe like that all day long, but you could take 10 deep breaths, big inhalation, big exhalation, take a moment of gratitude, try to appreciate the person in that meeting who you don't see eye to eye with. And then go into that meeting. I like that. Right. Or if you had a bad meeting, a difficult one, you feel stressed after that, or if you lost a client or whatever it is, take a moment to just say, Hey, you know, this happened. It's not the end of the world. What did I learn from it? What can I do differently? Mm -hmm. This is meant to teach me something. Mm-hmm. failure is pretty much the only thing that really teaches us in a deep and profound way. So it was a teaching, it wasn't a failure. It was a teaching moment. It was a learning moment. Mm-hmm. It's also my mindfulness is also mindset shifting from failure to stepping stone from failure to a teaching moment. Mm-hmm. So we do those. And then of course, before going to interact with your family again, after the workday, do I take a moment, sit in your car, wherever you are, before you interact with them, Take a few deep breaths, appreciate their presence in your life and all the good and value they bring to your life and then go interact with them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So mindfulness can be inserted, like you said, strategies. You can you don't have to do 10, 15 minutes all at once. I would say do one to two minutes, two, three times a day. Who can't do that? Mm-hmm. If someone says, I can't do that, I'm like, well, then there's something about your life that's just not going right. We need to reevaluate the whole thing. Like, one minute or two minutes of breathing and gratitude a couple times a day, anyone can do that. You can do it in the shower. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. So in these specific periods of time when we are trying to be mindful, is it is it always a focus on gratitude or for example, like maybe the positives about a given individual or um, you know about what you're looking forward to the next day? Or are there uh, times for mindfulness when you should be focused on nothing? Because I asked that because I, I heard on a separate podcast, um, there was kind of a, a philosopher type guy named Naval, who's big in Silicon Valley, tech investor. But he was talking about utilizing, or in his meditation, he's just focuses on awareness and focuses on the thoughts that come into his mind. Is there a strategy like that that you'd recommend as well? Or is that, or do you kind of see them as just two different paths? No, as I mentioned, there's a bunch of things we can do. And I, it's hard to talk about all. I mean, I know I talk about a lot of it in the book. Um, but one thing is uh, part of what I, when I do guide audiences, 
I do have an awareness exercise where I have them close their eyes and I tell them to look inward into their mind and become aware of the different thoughts that are going through there. I'm like, now don't engage with those thoughts. And if it's a negative thought, don't let it affect you negatively. Observe your thoughts as you would observe fish inside of a fish tank from a distance. Just observe. Learn to observe your thoughts from a distance so that they're not affecting you. Where you're just watching, they're like, oh, oh, this one, okay, this one, okay, this one, oh, this one, and this one, and this one, and this mm-hmm. one. Okay. Now I've taken inventory. Now I know what's up here. So I, that is part of the routine uh, that I guide people through. The fish in the fish tank is a great analogy. <laughs> it helps, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay, well, Pundit, when, when people talk about work-life balance, what comes to mind for you? Because I know that's one of your big speaking topics. I know that's an area where a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on work and personal life and how they interact. And a lot of times in the insurance world especially, it's tough to have work-life balance because you are you are subject to... Uh, a client or a prospect hitting you up at a certain time and you respond to them quickly generally has a positive impact on your relationship and your ability to close a deal. So how do you think about work-life balance? So it's fine that once in a while we have to respond at odd hours and late in the day or something like that. If we have, if we're, if that's part of our routine, then I think it makes it even more important to find time in the middle of the day to take time for yourself. So I think part of work-life balance, the message is that self-care is not selfish and that it's actually essential. When the airline industry tells us to put your own oxygen mask on first, they're not telling everybody on that plane to be selfish. They're just telling us that if you don't, if you're not breathing and conscious, you're not going to be in a position to help anyone else. So work-life balance means making sure we're finding and taking the time for our mental health, emotional health, and physical health. And there is no such thing as health without mental health. If mm-hmm. that starts to go down, it's going to affect our emotional and physical health. And we sh- there's no need to be embarrassed if we need help from a professional for our mental health. Just like we're not embarrassed to go to a dentist for a tooth problem, and we're not embarrassed to go to a physician, some other physician for other, other body ailments. We shouldn't feel embarrassed to take care of our mental health. So work-life balance for me, a big part of it means making sure we are nourishing our body, mind, and soul as much as we can so that we can be fully aware and conscious and be there for our family, our colleagues, and our clients. So I think it starts with taking care of ourselves. And part of taking care of ourselves means really just getting a really good night's sleep as much as possible. That means mm-hmm. not sending emails while I'm sitting in bed, right? Mm-hmm. Not like doing this while I'm in bed about to go to sleep and then putting it away. No, if you really do need to send an email, get out of bed, send it, because otherwise you've turned it into a workspace now. Right. And that energy can affect your ability to get a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you made a really interesting point there that self-care is not selfish because I think a lot of people, when they uh, look to do something that's self-care oriented, it, it, they might assume that it's selfish or they might think that others would look at them and be like, that's a selfish act. But I think the, positive, the positives that come out of that, like just your state and the, the, your internal peace, happiness, 
can have a huge impact on everybody around you. I think, I think it's, it's an exponential impact on, on folks around you. So I think that was a really important point that a lot of people might miss. Yeah. I mean, we're so used to just like go, go, go. And then, you know, we don't want to disappoint people. No, but first of all, if, if you, if you're not capable of really taking care of yourself, it's all going to start breaking down at some point, mm-hmm. you know, it's all going to come back to us. Our body's going to remind us at some point that, Hey, you didn't take care of me. And now I can't really give back to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pundit, a big portion of your book is focused on how leaders can benefit from mindfulness. Can you define what it means for mindful leadership and how it can be put into action? Yeah, I think one very important, a few different important components for mindful leadership is really making sure we're leading by example and doing the things we're asking our direct reports to do. If we're in a manager supervisory role, if we're asking people to behave in a certain way, do certain things, we have to show them that I'm also willing to do this. We shouldn't feel like this is below me and I'm going to push it off onto others because people feel that. And it immediately uninspires them to do that activity immediately. And now you've got someone uninspired because we did it to them. We uninspired them as a leader. And now we're expecting them to be fully productive. It doesn't happen. Yeah. So that's one thing. Another thing is really important for those in a leadership role is to on a regular basis, appreciate the contributions of their colleagues and coworkers, right? Whether there are direct reports below them, peers, whoever it is on a regular basis, appreciate because We have to give feedback sometimes and that's painful and that hurts the emotional bank account we have with that individual. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure we're constantly making deposits in the emotional bank account with those that are working for us and working with us by appreciating specifically what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And and, and showing it, I'm sure. Because I have a lot of folks in my, that I work for me that are, I can tell when they're fired up, someone did something really great that uh, reports to them and they're like, yeah, this, this person's doing awesome. And, but sometimes that signal of like, Hey, you did a great job on this is left out. So I think showing that as well could be really valuable. Yeah, 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 exactly. Meditating on it and actually expressing it somehow or other. And it doesn't always have to mean just giving them more money. It doesn't always have to mean that it could be a variety of things to say, Hey, maybe giving somebody a half day off or something because you you saw them work a bunch of overtime and they really got the job done in a fantastic way. Well, show it to them, give back to them they'll come back and give you so much more. There was an interesting research Wharton business school did where they were making fundraising calls and they decided to make the uh, divide the fundraising group into two. And mm-hmm. one group made calls as they normally would. And the other group received a call from the director appreciating what they were about to do. That second group made 50% more phone calls than the first group. Mm-hmm. There's no other factor, just that they got a call of appreciation. So it does make people more productive. They feel valued. And when a human feels valued, they just go above and beyond. Otherwise, we can push them through fear and aggressive methods to do more work. It's not going to work. A human just doesn't respond like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you implement the practices that you were talking about of being mindful throughout the day, you're building that self-awareness and you're building a better understanding of your environment, what's going on in it. And I think that's a great way for leaders to figure out potential issues they need to address or potential ways to just make the environment better for people to work in as well. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it doesn't just have to come from leaders. When I speak on the topic of workplace culture, I encourage people, even if they're not in a leadership role to appreciate their colleagues, 
hey, now you're building a better positive social connection with your colleagues. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to spend more than half your waking time at work, you might as well be in a positive social environment because mm-hmm. it, this research also shows that if those who have a positive social environment at work, they perform better at work and they're less depressed as well. <laughs> so it's just, it's in our own interest to do that. Yeah. You know, put it, I think for a lot of meditation, the way it's talked about is isolated in, in, you know, even in the working world, it's like, Oh, like get it done before you get in or get it done. Uh, in your car on the way home. And, and and there is a really individual element to meditation, no doubt. But is there any benefit to meditating in a group? Because that seems to be a big core element of, of what went on in the monastery. Is there any benefit to that? Or is it just kind of like you're on your own individual journey and there happens to be people around you? Uh, I think both are very beneficial. I really love doing it with a group. Uh, it just, it, it, you open your eyes and you see everyone doing it. It helps you stay focused on your own. Mm-hmm. You could have, you could have start planning your whole day for the next 20 minutes while you're meditating. Right. So mm-hmm. that could still happen in a group. It just helps, you yeah. know, it just helps when you have others. Like why do people go to a gym Yeah. as opposed to just getting, buying weights and doing it at home because they get to see other people's sweating and working hard. It's like, okay, they're, everyone's motivating each other just by being on that treadmill or lifting those weights. So you put yourself in an environment where you, others are doing the same thing. It helps. But of course, in a corporate environment, that's not always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll encourage groups. I'm like, hey, why don't you start your next meeting with one minute of breathing and everybody take a moment to f- express something they're grateful for in life and then begin your meeting. Mm-hmm. Just try that. And if it's too weird, then you don't have to do it. But I don't think anyone's going to mind taking one yeah. minute to do that. So I think that individual, ultimately, we will have to do that because it's hard to get a group together. Mm-hmm. I mean, after some of my talks, some companies have even created like a, blocked off a certain conference room. So, hey, guys, this is available for you to use uh, from this time to this time if you want to do the meditation. And some people have done that, implemented that in their companies, you know, after my talks and stuff. So <clears throat> groups are great. And individuals great. Whatever you can find, however you can yeah. find it. So you just got to do it, you know, to some degree or another. Okay. Okay, cool. I know I'm a little bit all over the place with these questions, but uh, I notice when I meditate, a lot of times, especially if it's in the morning, my mind just starts going into what I need to do that day and like my schedule and what I need to focus on first. Is that, is that the way it should work or should, should, should I be not focusing on those thoughts and just be focusing on the present? Well, maybe you can just take a moment and write down your tasks mm. so they're out of your head. And now yeah. you're not worried that you're going to forget. Mm-hmm. And maybe then get into the meditation. And then when you start thinking about other stuff, just try to gently push it out and stay in the present, knowing yeah. that you will get to it. Yeah. You won't forget it. It'll come back to you. When you get in the flow of work, it'll all come back. And plus, you already have things written down. So yeah. even the night before, just write down what you really need to do the next day. Mm-hmm. So that way your mind's peaceful. Hey, I'm not going to forget anything. Mm-hmm. And so now it's there. And then at that time, now you know that the next five minutes is purely for you to be in the present. Anything starts entering, just gently push it aside. Your mind goes here, just gently bring it back like a puppy. It's going here, here, here. Just kind of bring it back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give it a shot for sure. Well, Pun, I know we're kind of awesome. running up close to time here. I have one more question, and then we have five rapid-fire questions to end the conversation. So if you're still good to go on time, we can move forward. Are you, are you I good? I have to head out in five minutes. Okay, five minutes. We'll rifle through really quick. But I guess one question really, really fast 
that um, I'm curious about is you were a monk for 15 years in New York City, and obviously you know you are no longer living the monk lifestyle. What caused you to um, leave that uh, lifestyle in New York City? Uh, well, once a monk, always a monk to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but two things. One is that I wanted to basically take my messages into the corporate environment because I knew it would be helpful. I knew it would be tremendously helpful. And I just felt like when I wanted to go into the monastery, there was an internal calling to do that. I wanted to explore, leave the monastery and, and go into family life. Okay. Right? So both of those factors kind of came up for me. And so those were the factors that made me want to you know, yeah. exit and move forward in a different way. Okay. Well, let's dive into these five rapid fire questions quickly. Who is the best teacher that you've ever had? I mean, by name or just like, uh, there's, there's a monk in India that uh, I'm still in touch with after 20 plus years. Okay. Uh, he's been, there's a couple of them actually. So it's hard to say one, yeah. but there's a couple of them that have had an equal impact on me, but there's so many that I, it's hard to even name them actually. There's like, there's like at least five that yeah. have like a major impact on me. But I'd say two of those have had the most impact on. Okay, me. and they're both monks. I, yes. I guess I was curious if they're like they, they these teachers were going to come from um, your time as a monk or um, just outside normal life. They're so. still monks. Okay, okay. What is your favorite neighborhood in New York City? <laughs> well, I kind of like the Upper West Side. Because uh, it was much okay. nicer and cleaner than the Lower East. Okay. <laughs> Columbia University is there, so it had more of a college feel. Uh-huh. And it was like, you know, cleaner, bigger sidewalks. Just It was just a nicer, more pleasant environment to be in. Okay. If you could put one phrase on a billboard, what would it be? Self-care is not selfish. That's a great one. That, that was one of my favorite phrases that came out of the book. Okay. Would you ever consider getting back in the jewelry business? Not at this point. I love what I do way too much. <laughs> I feel like I'm giving jewels of wisdom and knowledge now. So yeah. I feel like in one sense, I'm still in the jewelry business. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Final question. What are you most excited for in 2022? So many things. I mean, I'm continuing the work that I'm doing in corporations, through media, and just, uh, you know, on college campuses still, I'm just very excited to continue doing what I'm doing. And I've also a year ago moved to Florida. So I'm also excited about just being in a new environment, but continuing the work I'm doing. So I'm just sort of excited of sort of everything that's happening in my life right now. And then if folks are trying to get access to you, Pundit, what is the best place for them to go? Should they follow you on social media? If they're interested in your coaching or your speaking, is there uh, a way that you'd prefer that they access you? My website, in one sense, the best way because it has everything that you kind of, all my coaching programs, the speeches I do in organizations, you can find out what speeches I give and uh, what kind of coaching programs I have. And it's punditdasa.com, just like my name, punditdasa.com. I'm also extremely active on LinkedIn and Instagram. Again, my handle is just punditdasa, P-A-N-D-I-T-D-A-S-A. So I post positive, inspirational messages literally at least once a day on both platforms, sometimes twice a day. So if you're just looking to get some inspiration, you can check that out. And I do respond to messages on those platforms as well. 
very actively, especially LinkedIn, I'm most active. So you can find me pretty much all over the place. You just Google my name and I think you'll find a lot about me and uh, you can get in touch with me through website, social media, and you will definitely get a response. Awesome. Well, Pundit, thank you so much for spending time with me. I really enjoyed your book, Closing the Apps, and uh, I'm excited to see the response because this is definitely uh, one of the more unique podcasts that we've had that applies, I think, really well to the insurance industry. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Patrick. It was a pleasure to speak with you about all of these topics. And I hope that some of the content was helpful, not just for you, but all the folks in the very stressful, busy uh, insurance industry. So I hope you all found it helpful. Thank you, Pundit. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. 